things. Uh, if you're new, my name is Aaron. Uh, welcome to 9 a.m. 9 a.m. service. Well done. I love it. Um, you've taken the blue pill, okay? Uh, the choice has been made. You know, this is your destiny. No. Uh, this is so cool. What an amazing day for us to go to two services. This is our 72nd week as a church. In case you're at week one with us, this is 72nd. Um, no, I do not have a calendar where I'm counting every week. I just did the math today. Um, and so God has been so faithful. So if this is your first week here, welcome. Uh, we have been journeying as a church by 18 months. We started 18 months ago. And God has been doing some great things to the point in the last about two and a half months we've been so filled uh, in the church that we needed to go to two services. And so it's great to have you here. And uh, it makes the room a little bit more personal, which I, I really like and appreciate. So looking forward to meeting you after service at the seven-minute hangout. You're probably wondering why I brought up a drill. I know you saw that when I pulled up. Uh, today, your, everyone's eyes were just like looking at this drill. Uh, one of the things I love is I love Ikea. Okay, who, who are my Ikea people here? Because I know it's like either a love or a hate thing. Okay, who, who does not like going to Ikea at all? Okay, I know who you are. Yeah, if you go to Ikea, you're like, I hate this place. It's no, there's no middle ground with Ikea. Uh, but I personally love going to Ikea. I love the showrooms, you know, walking around and sitting down. I love the little offices that you get to kind of hang out and pretend this is like where I could work, you know, possibly. Uh, I love the lighting in there. Like, this is so cool how they do the lighting. I love all the little trinkets that you think you need when you go there that you never knew that you need, right? You're like, oh, I need to have these coasters. They keep your coffee warm for 16 hours straight, you know, or whatever they sell there. Um, what I don't like, and I know you're, you know where I'm going with this, is I don't like the instructions, okay? No one likes IKEA instruction manuals. There's no one out there that's like, man, those IKEA instructions, they just crushed them. They're so good. So a couple of years ago, Chris and I bought a IKEA couch. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it was a sectional couch. And I've never put an Ikea couch together. I've never put a couch together. Do I look like a person that can put a couch together? No. You already know that, right? So I'm in line, and I'm, I'm uh, thinking about this couch and putting it together. And it, it popped up on the little menu as I was checking out at the store. And it said, 40, for $40 today, we will deliver your couch to your home, and an expert will put your couch together. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm not dumb. I'm like, I'm taking advantage of this. I want to avoid emotional damage to myself and my family. So I'm going to sign up for this thing. And, you know, I'm cheap. Just so you know, I don't normally do these things. I wear T-shirts still from high school, okay, to this day. I, I, am, I am cheap. But this was like, okay, I'm definitely signing up for this deal. So I signed up for it. And three hours later, this guy in a professional-looking IKEA T-shirt shows up with his drill. And I'm like, score, baby. I know this was the right deal for me. He brings in nine different boxes into my house, like these little Ikea boxes. I'm like, okay, there's no way I could have been able to do this by myself. So he, he kind of starts his whole process. And you know when someone's at your house, like a serviceman or, or a woman, and they're doing something, you're kind of always spying on them. Am I the only one that does this? You know, you're like kind of pouring your, your milk, and you're like, Making sure. Yeah, right? You guys all do that too? I, all the time. Like, I don't trust. I'm like, what are you doing back there, okay? You know, I'm just like making sure they're doing the work. Well, as I'm watching this all play out, I get the feeling in my stomach. And you all know the feeling, the gut feeling, that something is wrong. I'm like, this isn't working out the way that I thought. Because I thought the guy at the drill was going to put this thing together like so fast. Like 20 minutes, he's done. I'm on my couch watching football. And, and some time had passed, and he's just looking at the manual. He's like looking at it, trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I can't, if you know me, I can't sit still. 
And I'm like, okay, I pull my hair out already. I'm like, hey, can I help you? And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So we start working together. And before you know it, if you know Ikea, it's always a wrench. It's like a little wrench. Before you know it, I'm like doing the wrench. And he's watching me. And he's like, okay, okay, I see that, right? Well, three hours go by, and he finally confesses to me. He goes, I've never put an Ikea piece of furniture together in my life. This is my first day on the job. He goes, and he pulls up the instructions. These don't make any sense to me at all. And I'm like, can I get my $40 back, please? Come on. I mean, Ikea, what are you doing? Why do you give the guy a shirt if he doesn't know what he's doing? Come on. Well, God redeemed it, and, you know, um, he was stuck in my house for like half a day, it seemed like. And, uh, and so I told him about Jesus. I literally did. I'm like, okay, this is ministry. Let's go do. He actually lived in Corona. This was five months before he launched our church. And so I was trying to help him get connected to a place. But um, to this day, I don't know if I, if I sit in my couch, if it's going to fall apart or not. I, I don't know if, if it's put well together or not. Um, so question, have you ever tried to build something without all the pieces? Have you ever tried to put something together without all of the pieces that you needed for it? Have you ever tried to cook a meal without all the ingredients? Have you ever tried to uh, make a puzzle without all of the pieces? Of course we have. All of us have. But now a little bit more of the personal question, and that is this. Have you ever tried to be a Christ follower without the church? Have you ever tried to follow Jesus without having other people around you who know him. It's impossible. You can't have the fully formed, you know, experience that Jesus wants us to have without being around other followers of Jesus. We need to be around people that it's called the church. The church. The church isn't a building. The church is an assembly of people. It's the gathered people together. We need each other. Maybe you don't need this church but you need a church. You need a community of people that you can follow Jesus together with. You make this church great. This church needs you. And so we need the church, and the church needs you. Now that's fundamentally the truth that we're going to flesh out over the next three weeks of this new series on belonging. This is a, a series that's going to help us understand belonging before we make our big push for groups that begin in three weeks, and why it's so important for us to be surrounded by other people who know and follow Jesus and those who are exploring faith. If you're here for the first time or checking things out, like second or third time, and you're trying to figure out Jesus, we want you to be in a small circle of other followers of Jesus. One of our mantras here is that uh, circles are better than rows. That being in a group of, of Christians and, and other people exploring faith is much better than just sitting in a seat listening to a guy like me uh, on Sunday morning. And so this morning, we're going to look at the most important piece to this whole series. And again, I don't know if, if I sit down on my couch, if it's going to fall apart, but what I do know is if we don't have the piece that's mentioned today, uh, the church will not last. If we don't have what's mentioned in our passage this morning, the church will not last. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16. And we will jump right into it. Matthew 16, verse 13. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, you can just raise your hand. And Austin, actually, thank you, man. You're ready. I appreciate that. Um, we'll hand one to you. Uh, just raise your hand. You'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, please be our guest and take this home with you. Uh, we've given away about five Bibles in the past couple of months uh, to people who don't own one. We want you to have one and read it and, uh, and check it out. So Matthew 16. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament and uh, I think I got that right. Yeah, that's correct. And it's kind of three-fourths of the way into your Bible. 
uh, Matthew 16, verse 13. I'm going to read the whole passage together, and then as I normally do, I'm going to break it apart verse by verse so we can follow the train of thought in the passage. And here we go. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some of your translations say, who do people say I, the Son of Man, is? Jesus is speaking about himself here. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, verse 15, but who, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And my favorite phrase of the passage, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Lord, we gather this morning in your name, and we're so thankful to be here. Jesus, uh, I sense your presence in this room. And maybe you're here and it's been a while since you've been in a church. And I pray that just by being in a space like this, you will feel your faith grow. Uh, maybe today your faith is low or maybe you've abandoned your faith. And just I feel like God just wants to remind you that he is going to love you until you're worn out. <laughs> that he is going to love you until you're worn out and you know that he loves you. And so, Jesus, this morning as we begin this new series, I pray that you would help each person here know and experience what it's like to belong. Before we continue on our passage, I just really want every person in this room to think of a relationship in their life, someone they trust and they know and who knows them and that they love. And I want you to think of the feeling you have when you're with them. What's that feeling like to be around someone that you can trust in? that knows you. Lord, whatever that feeling is that we have in our heart right now, that's what it's like to belong to you. And that's what we pray that we would experience as a local church as we live out what it means to follow you. Thank you for your word. Would you speak to us this morning? Lighten our load, encourage us, and may we leave, out, leave here today with such a greater or deeper sense of love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus uh, jumps into our passage in verse 13, and he, he and his disciples, they go to Caesarea Philippi. And point number one today is this, understanding Jesus' identity is central to belonging to a church. I, my ADHD went off this weekend, so I don't know if every point is on the screen or not, but point number one, if you're taking notes, is this, understanding Jesus' identity is central to belonging to the church. Jesus, in verse 13, he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And that was a very interesting place to go. Caesarea Philippi, if you can bring up the maps here, was off the beaten path. You notice that it's on the northern west part of Israel. And Jesus typically kind of stayed in the central part of Israel and just went north to south from Galilee into Jerusalem. And so for him to go to Caesarea Philippi was a very intentional choice. And it was a bit of a surprise because Caesarea Philippi was sin city in their day. It was a godless place. 
It had no influence from Judaism at all. It was a pagan place, and it was probably a surprise that Jesus would have taken his disciples there. It would have been like saying to all of us today, hey, everyone, you know, we're going to make some changes. I want you to meet me at the seediest club at midnight in Las Vegas for Bible study. And somebody's like, Aaron, that's a little strange. Now, maybe some of you are like, that would be awesome. Let's do it. That sounds great. But I think you might question that decision on my part. Well, when Jesus says, I want to go to Caesarea Philippi, that's how the disciples would have responded. Like, we're going to go there, that place? Caesarea Philippi was established by Alexander the Great, and it was a central hub for the pagan god Pan. Uh, Pan was uh, the god, uh, the, the Greek god for uh, the fields and the shepherds. He had pointy ears, he had a flute, and he looked like a goat from the waist down. And people would go to Caesarea Philippi, and they would uh, do uh, sacrificial uh, uh, acts and heinous acts uh, to, to the god of Pan. Uh, in fact, they would also sacrifice infants and children at this place. Uh, it was awful, because next to the, the temple of Pan, if we can bring this picture up, uh, team, that'd be great. There should be, there we go. Next to one of the, the temples of Pan was the gates of Hades. And the gates of Hades was a cave that went so far deep that they believed it actually went into hell. And out of this cave was a river. And people would come, and they would take an infant, and they would put the baby into the river. And if the river went into the cave, the, the mouth of the cave, and down and in the, into the bottom of the cave below where it would die, they believed that the god Pan accepted their sacrifice. Awful stuff. If they placed the infant in the water, and the baby just sunk and drowned in the water, they believed that the god Pan rejected their sacrifice. This was a dark place. In fact, the way uh, it worked out in, in our modern-day language is that we get the word panic from this god Pan. It was a place of fear, a place of panic, a place of darkness. Peter Pan is named after the god Pan. That's why Peter Pan has a flute and has pointy ears. And so Jesus takes him to this place. This is where Jesus takes him to. And he asks him two questions as the, the temple of Pan and the, the gates of Hades, this cave, stands behind Jesus. He says to him, who does the public say that I am? Picture yourself with the disciples. And Jesus looks at you. Who does the public say that I am? And then Jesus says a second question. Who do you personally think that I am? Now, when I finished up my master's degree, I had to write up a paper summarizing all that I had learned in the seminary time, right? Kind of summarizing all my... my what I had taken away from that, that time of education. And Jesus, in Matthew 16, is at the end of his three years with his disciples. He spent three intentional years discipling 12 men to take on his mission after he died and rose from the dead. And uh, he's coming to the end of that time, and he's about to turn to the cross, and the rest of the book of Matthew is kind of the, the couple weeks of his death and resurrection. And Jesus now is turning to them, and it's exam time. And he says to his disciples two questions for the exam. Who do people say that I am, the public? And then who do you personally say that I am? And so the disciples answer it in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The disciples say that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life, is like one of these three deceased Jewish leaders. John the Baptist. Jeremiah, Elijah. John the Baptist had just been killed a year and a half ago. He was beheaded. And some say, Jesus, your ministry is like John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist's ministry was all truth. He was a truth teller. He 
preached against politicians, and he got beheaded for that. And people saw Jesus teach, and they heard his authority, and they heard him teach against the temple and against the Pharisees and against false religion and empty religion. People said, oh, Jesus, you're like John the Baptist. You're just like John. Like, you're a truth teller. I like that. And then some people saw Jesus perform miracles. They said, oh, you're like Elijah. See, Elijah's ministry was a ministry of miracles and power. You know, if you know uh, Elijah, he ran faster than a chariot in one of the stories. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, I want that miracle. That's kind of fun. Um, another miracle is he prayed for a, a woman who was faithful to God that her oil jar would refill itself every time it ran out for an entire year. Can you imagine, you know, going to your refrigerator and your milk, milk just kind of fills back up after it's uh, low? That'd be kind of cool, right? Well, Elijah's ministry was all about miracles. And when people saw Jesus do miracles, like raise Lazarus from the dead or heal a blind person's uh, sight, they said, oh, you're like Elijah. That's what you're like. You're like him. And then some said, you're like Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a, a prophet for the people. He wept over people. He cared for people. He loved people. And when people saw Jesus uh, love the marginalized and care for the poor and, you know, invite in the rejects of his culture, they, he, they, people said, oh, he's like Jeremiah. He loves people. He loves others. He's like a shepherd. And all of those were compliments in some way, but what people really wanted to do was they just wanted to put Jesus in a box. They just wanted to put him in their own little sphere of what they wanted for Jesus. Some just wanted the gentle and lonely Jesus. They just wanted all the feelings. Oh, I want to feel good. I want the mercy and the compassion. We all want that. I just want that part of Jesus. But they didn't want the truthful part of Jesus. They didn't want the, the teaching part of Jesus. In fact, there was a scholarship group, a uh, uh, a group of scholars in the 80s and 90s called the Jesus Seminar, and they tried to extract from the Bible all of the tough sayings of Jesus. They just wanted the nice, you know, you know uh, Hallmark card version of Jesus. And then there are some people that just want the miracle Jesus. They just want him to show up, solve the problems, make it all go away, make all the problems disappear, and they don't want the marginalized Jesus who cares for people when it's tough and it's messy and it takes time and it's, and it's painful to linger with people. We just want Jesus to solve it all and move on. And many people today are similar. You know, I think all of us kind of like to put Jesus in a box. We just kind of want him the way that we want him to be for us. I do that for me. I kind of end up wanting the gentle and lowly Jesus, but the truthful Jesus, uh, I'll take him a different day. But let me just remind us, church, that Jesus is more tender than you could ever imagine, that his, his truth is more life-giving than you could ever fathom, that he's more powerful than you could ever think. And for us to put Jesus in a box actually makes him a lot smaller than he actually is. You know, Jesus is much bigger and loving and more kind than we could ever fathom. And many people today have an incomplete view of Jesus. You know, the Muslims, they think that Jesus is a second-tier prophet, that he wasn't divine, that he actually didn't die on the cross. The, uh, the Mormons think that Jesus was a brother to Lucifer. Uh, Buddhists think that Jesus, uh, you know, had a bunch of different lives. He was reincarnated several times and reached the highest state of humanity. Hindus think that Jesus was just a wise teacher. And so against the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus seeks to have all of his followers have a complete picture of who he really is. He wants everybody to have a full picture of who he is. In logic and in philosophy, there's a law. 
and it's called the law of non-contradiction. You know like the law of gravity. It's a law of, of non-contradiction. And this law says this, um, that a, a statement and its denial cannot both be true at the same time. You know, so I can't say that John is married to Betsy, that Be Betsy is not married to John. You know what I mean? Like, those two statements cannot be both true. If one statement of truth is said and then another denies that statement, both statements cannot be true. And so the law of non-contradiction says that somebody can't arrive and say Jesus is the Messiah and he's Lord and he's God and at the same time say he's just a reincarnated human being. And that's why Jesus points to his disciples and he asks them the second question. The second question is, but who do you say that I am? He wants them to personally wrestle now with who he is. He wants to make sure they really understand him in light of this secular background that he's standing in front of. And so Peter says in verse 16, this incredible statement. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter identifies Jesus in two ways. He says, you're the Christ and you are the son of the living God. The word Messiah means Christ. When I was growing up, I wasn't a Christian until I was 20. I oftentimes thought that Jesus Christ, Christ was his last name. And maybe you're, you wonder that too. No, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. That was a title. And the word uh, Christ means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the Jews looked forward to an anointed one that God would send that would deliver all people from evil and from sin. And Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And this anointed one is going to be prophet, priest, and king all rolled into one person. And Peter says, you're him. You, you are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited, anointed one that's going to deliver humanity from sin, and you are a prophet, and you are a priest, and you are a king, all rolled into one, and you are also the son of the living God, which was also a promise from God to King David that one day God would send his own son to, David, uh, to, to sit on David's throne forever and ever. Essentially, what Peter is saying is you are the Messiah, you're the Savior, and you are God's own son. You know, Jesus isn't just a prophet and Jesus isn't just a, a wise teacher, and Jesus isn't an enlightened man or a miracle worker. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the savior of the world. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died on a cross. He resurrected from the grave from a borrowed man's tomb, and he offers life to people. This is who our God is. This is who Jesus is. And in light of Peter's confession, I want to return back to that backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. Because not only is Jesus trying to complete their understanding of him, he's also asking them if they will live for him even when it's unpopular to do so. And so I think there's a faith lesson for, for us in this. Imagine that you're one of those disciples sitting there with Jesus. And he might say to us today, he might say, hey, it's easy to come to church and say Jesus is Lord, but will you live for me in your Caesarea Philippi? Will you live for me and stand up that Jesus is the Christ? Will, I mean, what is your Caesarea Philippi? Is it a place of moral compromise at work? Is it a, a, a situation in your family that's dark? What is your Caesarea Philippi where you might have to stand up and say, this is my God. This is who Jesus is. And I want to proclaim him and live for him. Um, by the way, that's what baptism is. Um, when you're baptized, you're, being publicly, you're publicly declaring, this is my God. Jesus is my God. And for those of you who are going to be being baptized in a few weeks, that's what you're going to do on the beaches of Orange County. You're going to say, you know what? Jesus is my God. I want everyone to know. And if you've never been baptized before, I want to encourage you to consider it 
and to join us, uh, especially uh, if you're new to faith and, and, and you're walking with him now. And then finally, Jesus also wants us to know that nothing will overcome. Look at what Peter says in this passage, verse 17, uh, or what Jesus says back to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Jonah, that was Peter's dad, uh, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He's basically saying, Peter, you just said a profound thing, and by the way, that don't get proud. That wasn't from you, okay? That was from God who gave that in, insight by, uh, to you. Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, Jesus is making a statement and a play on words. Peter's name, Peter, uh, is the Greek word for uh, petro, uh, petros, and it means small stone. Everyone picture a small stone. And then Jesus says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And the Greek word here for rock that he uses in the second part of the verse is petra, which means a large stone. Jesus is making a statement. He's telling Peter, Peter, you just said something profound. You said something amazing. Um, but you're just a single human being. You're just a man. But upon what you said, the statement you made about me, upon that unmovable, shakable boulder, I will build my church. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that the church is not founded on a human being. It's founded on the Christ. It's founded on Jesus. It's founded upon him. And he looks over at the gates of Hades. Well, these awful things have been happening. He looks over at the, the, the temple of Pan and he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. Now look back down at the passage and see what he says. Look at, look at what he says. He doesn't say, the gates of Hades will not overcome me. He doesn't say, the gates of Hades will not overcome you. What does he say? The gates of Hades will not overcome it, the church, us. The gates of Hades will not overcome the collection of God's people together. Belonging to a church connects you to Christ who will not let our faith be overcome. Now go back to that Ikea uh, picture. <laughs> Putting together that Ikea thing. Remember that? You know, I, I don't know if that, tr that couch is going to last. But what I do know is that if we are not connected to a church, our faith will not last. It will be overcome. The word overcome here uh, means to prevail. And it's only used two different times in the New Testament. One time to describe uh, overcoming in prayer. You see, when we're connected to a church, we can uh, overcome the temptations and compromise that can happen when we're not connected to a church. Now, am I suggesting that you, you can't be a follower of Jesus if you're not connected to a church? No, absolutely not. Like, you can follow Jesus on your own without being connected to a church. It's just that much more easy to be overcome. That's the point of the passage. So I have another illustration. I'm, I, hopefully the sound doesn't go crazy walking over here. If it does, I'm sorry. Um, broke a rule. Uh, I have a tripod, all right? And a tripod has three legs. And you put a camera on it, okay? And picture your faith as a camera, an expensive, valuable camera. And the, and the foundation is Jesus, right? Jesus says he's going to build his church. He's the foundation. He's immovable. He's strong. The local church is the tripod. It connects you back into that strong faith. 
And, and there are three legs to it, right? There, are, there is the, the leg of, of God's word, that when we come together, we listen to the Bible, we learn the teachings of Jesus together, like we're doing today, and we leave here with a common sense of, of, of vision from the Bible, is God's word. And then, of course, there's loving relationships. There's the 25-minute hangout, whatever it is now, after, after Matt redefined it. Thank you, Matt. Um, you know, right? There's coffee after, there's loving there's groups to get into. There's loving relationships to be part of in the local church. And then there is the experience of the Holy Spirit. There's the sense of God's presence being with us every step of the way. And when you belong to a local church, Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's a lot harder to push over. But when you don't have a tripod, you're just a monopod. They have those, right? They have monopods. It keeps, keeps it steady a little bit, but you've got to hold it up yourself. Some of us have been holding up our faith on our own because we're walking alone, just us and Jesus. And it's so easy that if you don't have a local church, to be overcome. Glad they didn't knock over my iPad. <laughs> had, a, had a heart attack right there. That almost overcame me. You get the point though, right? A lot easier to be overcome if you don't have a community of people to lean on. I want to share with you a story of somebody in our church who has found belonging, who's found Jesus helping her overcome some pretty cool things. And if you know Kiono, um, she is such a godsend to us, and uh, Kiono is so sweet. And so, Kiono, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, she's here today at our 9 o'clock, um, and we filmed her this week, and, and I just want to show you a little bit of her testimony this morning. Can we play that clip? I was baptized when I was eight years old. As I grew up in the church, I came to find that there was so much judgment and um, wow. Before I came to this church, there's a lot of doubt. I've always believed in God, but I've never found that safe place to, to learn more or to grow as a person. Um, and I always felt, I guess, lost, a lot of anger in my life. <laughs> a lot of guilt. There's a lot of um, broken relationships in my life. And um, I just, I didn't like the way I was feeling. So actually, um, John was uh, across the street and he saw the friend sign and he started attending uh, the church and he told me about it and I decided to come one Sunday. And when I walked through the doors, I felt nothing but um, like happiness and warmth and um, it just felt uh, overwhelming but in a good way and um, after my first service like I'll never forget the feeling that I had um, 
there's just so much love and the, the people actually cared of, of who I was and um, why I was here. And it just made me want to be a part of something. I've seen Jesus working in my life for the past few months since I started attending Friends in the many ways. Um, I found that this is the place that I wanted to be. One of the ways I've experienced Jesus is uh, through his people and that's just through all the love and support that everyone gives to each other here. The reason why I'm choosing to be baptized um, in September is because, I mean, God is good. He's done a lot for me. The difference, I would say, between being baptized from when I was eight years old and from choosing to be baptized today would be that I understand fully what I'm doing and um, I am declaring my love for God and this is the best way that I know how to um, show Him. I feel like the decisions I'm making are, you know, something that's that's bettering my life. And I feel like putting God first is something that is really getting me to where I need to be, so. Can you give it up for Fiona? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a testimony of a person who's been utterly transformed by Jesus, right? I mean, what I loved was, I listened to it a couple times, and what I heard over and over again was that Jesus overcame doubt in her life, overcame fear, overcame anger. Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, what, what is your gates of Hades? Now, obviously, it's all of our sin, right? But maybe it's crippling fear. Um, maybe it's uh, a, a, a little side addiction that no one knows about. May, uh, maybe it's uh, a, a family situation. What is your gates of Hades that you're looking at and you're saying, man, being part of the church will help me overcome what I'm facing right now? I think about our culture and where it's headed. And I really hope this next year to encourage us because I think this next year everyone knows that it's going to be a dark year in our culture. Um, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. I think everyone probably feels that. Um, and I, I think that the gates of Hades are going to try to bring fear and darkness and division and hatred into our culture and our world. And those gates of Hades are going to try also to infiltrate the church. And as we enter into this new fall season, I just want to say that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And the reason why is because Jesus is the foundation of the church. He's the one that we can look to. Now, is the church perfect? No. In fact, actually look down with me at this passage. Five minutes after this happened, uh, you've got to love Peter. Jesus kind of hears Peter's tenderness and his disciples' tenderness. He goes, okay, you got the lesson. You passed the test. And then, and then Jesus says, okay, I want you to know I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. And then in, in verse 22, look what Peter says. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. I mean, can you imagine this? After this great tender moment, the gates of Hades aren't going to overcome us. Guys, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to go to the cross. Peter's like, no, Jesus. And he rebukes Jesus. I mean, what? this guy's on another level. And Jesus says to him, uh, back to him, get behind me, Satan. 
You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the concerns of man. You know, the church is not perfect. Sometimes the church gets man's concerns and God's concerns mixed up. You know, uh, when I first planted uh, this, uh, thought about planting this church and getting things going, people said to me all the time, Aaron, it's so much better to plant uh, a church than to take over an old one because it's so much better to create your own problems rather than try to fix someone else's problems. And I, that was a, I was like, there's truth in that, right? It's kind of practical. But let me just say that for 18 months and 72 weeks of uh, joyfully, thankfully serving your, as your pastor, I have lost sleep at nighttime over the problems I've created. The weight of my own issues, my own imperfections in this community. I've lost sleep. There have been conversations I wish I could have redone. There have been decisions I could have, wish we could have re replayed over. And part of my prayer ever since we started, and recently, especially with this passage, has been, Jesus, build your church. Just build your church. And then secondly, and then don't let me get in the way of it. <laughs> like, don't let me be a stumbling block and, and get off a track on God's concerns and man's concerns. We just want to keep God's concerns front and center. And I say that because sometimes people come into our congregation and they have church hurt. I know some of us in this room have church hurt. I've talked to you about it. I hear it. And I think just to acknowledge that the church is not perfect. It doesn't always get it right. But Jesus is still the foundation and the gates of Hades cannot overcome it. There is redemption and there's goodness in it. And so um, maybe you're here for the first time and you're wondering, what do I do next? Or you're checking things out. I want to keep inviting you into this imperfect place that Jesus is using, that he's building his church upon. So true belonging begins by first belonging to Jesus. And we want to invite you to that. And this morning we're going to take communion. Um, I don't think there's any better way for us to celebrate this statement by Peter and by Jesus by celebrating communion. And it's also a reminder that, you know, we are imperfect, we're sinful, and we need a Savior, we need Jesus as the Christ to help us know him and forgive us of our sin. But before we take communion, I want to show you something. I was doing some research this week, and uh, as I was looking at things, uh, up popped uh, a video of Phil Wickham. And if you don't know Phil, he's a, a worship leader in the area, he does a bunch of stuff, he had a concert in Ontario. We sing like half of his songs for worship songs here at our church, and he's a great guy. He's kind of a Southern California dude. Um, and they interviewed him on, on Fox News about his faith and uh, about a song that we're going to sing as a response to communion. And I want you to pay attention to how the hosts of the, of the show keep on trying to like say, you're successful. You may, you're, you're crushing it in life. And every time, uh, Phil just keeps pointing back to what it's all about. It's about Jesus. It's about, it's about, the, about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And, and it's just a wonderful modern example of what happens in this passage and I think it's a reminder of what can be true of us as we face our own Caesarea Philippi's in our lives. So can we play that interview for a moment? My parents have uh, been worship leaders as long as I've been alive. So music and Jesus and church um, were always a part of my life. But it wasn't until I started playing guitar and singing these songs that I, started, that I was singing in church. I, I started that relationship with God. How old so. were you when that? My dad gave me my first guitar uh, when I was 12 years old, so okay. I've been doing it for a while, 38 yeah. now. Um, but I think the more the time that goes on, the more people that join in and sing, the more honored and humbled I am that I get to do this with these awesome guys. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have you all. You're at the point now where when you visit churches, I mean, they've already been singing the songs that you wrote. It's I so mean, cool. I mean, what in the be. world? I mean, even in international places like uh, 
I'm getting emails from China or Brazil and people are translating these songs into their languages. No one knows even who I am there, <laughs> but they know these songs and that's really what I wrote them for. I wrote them for my church back home to sing and uh, the fact that they go out of the four walls of my church into other people's lives and become prayers to God is crazy. It's, I'm just so thankful. You had so many number ones. Your first one was on the chart for 13 weeks. I mean, all this success and yet I imagine, I don't, I'm not so, I wouldn't guess it's a struggle, but a reminder always why you're doing this, what the inspiration is, what it's about. Yeah, well, last night even, I was, we were, I mean, what time, Richmond, Virginia, before tonight, and it, it was filled with a bunch of people, uh, for sure not singing about me, you know what I mean? It was just a bunch of people singing about how we believe God saved us and through his son Jesus and lifting up praise for that. And so it's just like, I'm reminded by people singing back to me every night. It's like, right. we, we know what this is really about. Hmm. We know what this is all about. They're not singing about me. We know what this is about. And I think that's a great summary of what this passage is and what it is, why we belong to a church. We know what this is about. This is about Jesus. It's about him. It's about you and him. It's about us and him. It's about him overcoming the things that we face together. And so if you have your communion cup, you can open it up and please take out the cracker. <laughs> 